When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'd like to welcome to everybody to today's presentation on ethics, counseling skills development, self-care, and ongoing supervision. We're really going to be talking about why these things are ethical imperatives for us. We'll review the philo philosophical ethical practices. Hopefully, I'll be able to get my tongue untied while we get started. Explore how the following are ethical imperatives and how to fit them in. Counseling skills development, ongoing supervision, and self-care. So our five ethical principles, if you remember back to your counseling ethics class, non-malfeasance, beneficence, justice, fidelity, and autonomy. Now, we typically focus on non-malfeasance or non-maleficence, depending on where, what part of the country you're from, to do no harm. And above all, we want to do no harm. But is that enough? I mean, that's kind of like the difference between laws and, and ethics. It's a bare minimum that we do no harm. So we're going to talk about how lack of some of these things can contribute to harm to the client. Beneficence, and this is one we don't pay attention to enough often, and I think it's so important for us to help further important interests. We want to further the profession. We want to get involved in research. We want to do advocacy. We want to do outreach. There are things that we can do that are beneficent for our clients in order to create a more supportive community for them. And it doesn't take a lot of work. It's not something like, oh my gosh, I've got to go out and start doing this whole research project. You can do simple things that are beneficent. You can create flyers that, or even download some of the ones from SAMHSA or NIH, or even order some, even better yet. SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, has lots of pamphlets and handouts, and so does the National Institute of Drug Abuse, that you can order for free. And they're beautifully printed, glossy, colorful, you know, graphically intense sort of things that you can give to family practice physicians that, so they can give them to their clients or make them available in their waiting room. You can often get permission to put them out at the library. Different places like that where people might be interested or might be hanging out who are interested in learning more about bipolar disorder or postpartum depression or anything like that. So it doesn't take a lot to be beneficent, but we do need to consider it. We want to do more than what's expected. Justice is giving all people what they are due, recognizing that all individuals, regardless of race, ethnicities, sexual orientation, yada, yada, yada. All people are valuable and deserving of our highest quality services. You don't want to be in a situation where you're working in a clinic and you're like, well, this client is an indigent client and this client is private pay. So the private pay is going to get better services than something else. We do want to make sure that all people are recognized for their value. Fidelity. Be faithful in keeping your promises, including confidentiality. And one of the ones that really is a sticker for me, uh, showing up on time and keeping your appointments on time. I think it's so inconsiderate when you go to doctor's offices and they make you wait 20, 30, 50 minutes. I usually leave after 45 me. Um, by the time I'm, my appointment is 45 minutes past, I'm like, well, they don't really want to see me. I'll go somewhere else. 
but that's just me. We do need to be faithful in keeping promises because part of that is developing trust with the client, but part of that is also validating that the client is an important person and their time is important. And finally, autonomy. We want to support the client's right to choose and recognize the impact of our behavior on theirs and likewise their behavior on ours, encouraging the client to be more autonomous. So those are the ethical principles, just kind of in brief. <clears throat> Specific steps in ethical decision-making, and again, you're going to probably recognize these, but it doesn't hurt to go over them. Recognize an ethical issue as a decision or situation that could be damaging to someone or to a group, which involves a choice between either good and bad, and you know, good and bad options, that's usually a pretty easy choice. What's harder is if you're choosing between two bads, the lesser of two evils, or two goods. And when you have two goods, you still want to choose the, the goodest good, if you, if you will. Forgive my grammar there. So what do we need to do when, we, when we're faced with one of these situations? Well, we need to get the facts. Obviously, what are the relevant facts? Yeah, that's the easiest question that we ask ourselves. The questions that we often forget to ask ourselves are, what facts do I not know? What am I missing here? Can I learn more about this situation? And do I know enough to make a decision? A lot of times, we'll, we'll use what are the relevant facts and do I not know enough to make a decision? And we'll miss the other ones. We'll miss the questioning of, am I seeing the whole picture? We also want to find out what individuals and groups have an important stake in the outcome. If you're working in community behavioral health, for example, there are going to be stakeholders. There are going to be other departments that might lose billable hours or gain billable hours based on a choice that you make. There might be, obviously, the client has a stake in it. Your organization and your organization's reputation have a stake in it. And all of those concerns are important, as well as your own personal stake in it. And yeah, we have a stake in it. When we have clients coming in, we want to do our best. We want to provide good services. If we're not providing good services, we're not going to have a lot of clients, and that's going to be a problem for us too. So we need to make sure that we are empowering clients and making them helping them walk out feeling stronger, happier, healthier, and, and promoting a really good feeling about our business. And what are the options for acting? What, what options do I have here? When I see clients for substance abuse assessments, for example, we have a lot of options. We can do 12-step meetings. We can do once-a-week outpatient. We can do intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, residential, detox. There are a lot of options that are available. When it comes to mental health, there are fewer levels and options that are generally available in a lot of places. But we do want to know what the options are. For example, if you're working with a client who has PTSD, you may want to consider what are the options for this client's treatment. If they were coming to see me, you know, I, I have a trauma-informed care approach. I, I work with a lot with cognitive behavioral, yada, yada, but I don't do EMDR. And for some clients, EMDR just really sounds like it would be a good fit for them. So it's important that I make that option available to them. Not just what are the options that benefit me for acting, but what are the options available to the client, available to address this issue. Have all relevant persons and groups been consulted? Sometimes you'll have clients that you don't exactly know how to address it. Uh, there was somebody in one of my Facebook groups the other day who was working with a client who had selective mutism, and she was asking for input about good resources because she wasn't aware of all of the options that were available. So she was reaching out and asking, and that, that was awesome. And have I identified any creative options? <clears throat> you may be working with a client who has uh, agoraphobia or obsessive compulsive disorder, and they can't leave their house, or they get so caught up in their rituals that they can't make it to appointments. So how can we be creative? Instead of saying, you have to come in for this appointment, 
once a week for an hour when we meet face to face yada yada what are some creative options for working with this client that can work with them the other things that we can look at for creative options if you have a single parent who is needing therapy services but they work a job that you know they don't have time off if they're not there they don't get paid and finances are tight how can you still meet with them tell them mental health that's an option so we do need to be creative and kind of get outside the box and peer consultation I, I agree is also super important whenever you even if you think you know all of the options never hurts to throw it out there and ask and go you know what I'm working with this particular situation any idea or this is the way I'm thinking of approaching it can I get some feedback on what you think might work evaluate alternative actions which option will produce the most good and do the least harm generally there are some drawbacks to everything therapy for example can do a lot of good but it can get costly you know do the most good that's kind of what we're looking at which option best respects the rights of all who have a stake so we want to make sure we're doing doing right by every all the stakeholders that we identified which option treats people equally or proportionally and which option leads me to act as the sort of person as I want to be when I was in grad school the professor said if your mother found out about this would you be proud or ashamed if your best friend found out about this would you be proud or ashamed and that was one of those little questions you can ask which comes down to make a decision you find out all your options you get all the facts find out all your options and then you've got to decide which one of these would I be most proud of if I made this decision and why making sure that you're looking back and assessing how it treats people and whether everybody's rights are being respected then finally you just got to act there's only so much thinking and talking and pondering you can do you got to make a step forward and do something doesn't mean it's necessarily gonna turn out as as you expected or it's going to be the best situation but it is something and you need to try something you need to take a step forward and then reflect on the outcome if it didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to okay why not and what do you need to do differently look at it as a learning experience and again get supervision or get consultation from colleagues to see you know I, I implemented this strategy and I expected it to turn out this way and that's not how it went at all what do you think might have happened or what do you think is a better approach great way to approach things with all that being said a lot of times we have to make decisions we have only a limited number of hours in the day and we have lives in addition to our jobs and everything else so sometimes we've got to choose which trainings can I go to I know SAMHSA just put out a new publication today and I got it and I got a little sidetracked because I was so excited to see a new publication out and it probably wasn't the best choice to get immersed in reading that right now when I had other things that I needed to get done so ethically probably not the best choice we need to weigh our options but continuing education isn't really an option it's just how you get it and when you get it it can be you have a little bit more latitude with when you have an illness do you really want to go to a physician who hasn't been trained on new techniques since she graduated from medical school well clients don't want to come to us if we haven't been trained on anything new if that were the case we'd all still be doing psychoanalysis if people weren't trying to grow and learn new skills and stuff our understanding of people and development and the brain and what causes mental health issues is still in its infancy and every year we find out more we're just now learning about the uh, gut brain axis and how leaky gut and in inflammatory bowel syndrome and all that other stuff can actually impact mood who knew now we're starting to understand why some people don't respond to antidepressants now we're just starting to understand so continuing skills development is so important and yes 
we don't prescribe. Most of us in here don't prescribe. But being aware of all of the different potential causes of our client's distress can help us effectively differentially diagnose and educate the clients about, well, you know what? It might be that you've got a hormone imbalance that is making your serotonin and dopamine less bioavailable. So as part of our assessment, would you be willing to go get a physical and get blood work done? You know, that's not something that I was trained to ask when I was in, in graduate school, but it's something that I ask every single client now. Not necessarily the hormone thing, but I want them to get a full physical so we can rule out any physiological causes of their mood disorder. Um, skills development helps us avoid providing subpar treatment. Yes, what you learned in graduate school is great, but if there are other newer, better options out there, at least for some things, then providing the same old treatment may be considered subpar. We do want to have a lot of tools in our toolbox. Think about cars. Can you get from point A to point B with a horse and buggy? Sure enough, can. However, you probably get there a lot faster and safer in a car now. The same sort of thing is true. Counseling has evolved. Skills development helps ensure we're providing the best possible care, so we're being beneficent. We are enhancing our skills and allows us to keep our promises of providing the best possible care. We're showing fidelity here because we tell clients, you come to us, if you give, give us your trust, then we are going to give you 110%. Not all skills development comes in the form of continuing education or professional development courses. It's important that we recognize this. We can get skills development in a lot of different ways. Find a mentor to work under. When I was working in the community mental health clinic, one of my mentors did an amazing trauma group, and I learned so much from shadowing and then co-facilitating under him. And, and that's how I developed a lot of my initial trauma skills. You can find a mentor. I was in one of my groups on Facebook the other day, and somebody wanted to learn about sports psychology. And wanted to know, you know, where do you find people who are sports psychologists? I went to Therapist Locator on Psychology Today and pulled up a whole list of people who identify as specializing in sports psychology in her area. There are people probably doing what you want to do. If you want to learn more about eating disorders, go find somebody in your area who specializes in eating disorders and see if you can shadow them or work under them for a period of time. Now, that takes a lot of time, especially if they're not in your agency. If they're in your agency, it's kind of a no-brainer. It task-focused supervision. And what I mean by that, how many of you have ever gone to a, a conference? I remember one motivational interviewing conference I went to many, many years ago. And we learned all kinds of great tools and techniques. And I got out of there and I was stoked. I was ready to use motivational interviewing. And I got back to the clinic and when I was in session, couldn't remember a daggum thing. Task-focused supervision helps you focus on a specific skill that you're trying to enhance. So what would have been better is if, because my whole department went to this conference, if our department had gotten together and in our weekly meetings talked about a particular intervention in the motivational interviewing realm that we were all going to focus on working on that week or, or each person would pick one and talk about how they implemented it. Task-focused supervision encourages you to start changing your behavior because somebody else is holding you accountable, if you will, to do it. Now, you can hold yourself accountable. There's a curriculum out there called MIA Step, Motivational Interviewing Assessment something. It's M-I-A-S-T-E-P. If you want to learn motivational interviewing, it has the rubrics in there that you can use to score yourself. You just record your sessions and then go back through and score how many times you use different interventions. It's one way to do it. And that kind of falls under the self-supervision area. Read. I love reading. Y'all know I love reading. So I'm going to share with you 
maybe. A couple of the places that I prefer to get articles, and I've told you many times before about PubMed. And you just type in PubMed and Google will bring it up for you. And you can bring up anything. Um, Treatment-resistant depression in adolescence. I want to look for things in the last five years on humans. And you can look at different studies that have been done. Now, if you're not really into reading, well, let me give you a hint. If you don't remember from graduate school, when you pull up a study, read the abstract, read the introduction, and then skip down to the results and conclusions. If you're not interested in exactly how they went about it, Assuming that if it's in a peer-reviewed journal, that the statistics are probably spot on, that's the way you can get through and you don't have to remember what your uh, Cronbox Alpha and everything else is. So that's one way to read, easily read research. Uh, clinical guidelines, they're out there. SAMHSA has a lot, and I told you they just came out with uh, Tip 61 today, which is Behavioral Health Services for American Indians and Alaskan Natives. But SAMHSA calls them TIPS, Treatment Improvement Protocols, and they are generally anywhere from 100 to 300 pages. You can get them in PDF. A lot of them you can actually order online from SAMHSA or... You used to be able to. That may have gone away with budget cuts. However, up oh, here, order publication. Um, okay, they changed how they do that, but I digress. You can download it as a PDF. That's the easiest way to do it. And you can read through what they offer. Let's go back here. They have behavioral health services, uh, medication use for... Uh, medications for opioid use disorder, behavioral health services for people who are homeless. You know, there's obviously 60 of them that you can go through. Lots of great information for current best practices based on the research, and it's free. The APA, the American Psychological Association, also has guidelines. And I'm not going to go through each one of these, but if you go to that link, it's the PTS guidelines, practice guidelines for the behavioral treatment of obesity and overweight in children and adolescents, yada, yada. And there's about 30 of them that you can go through. The American Counseling Association has, well, I guess I am going to go through a few of these. This is like um, a goodie bag for me. That's, I'm weird that way. The American Counseling Association now has these practice briefs that are out that are based, they're basically research meta-analyses, but they have tons and tons of them, and they're not super long, so you can look at those. Now, for those people who are, well, even if you're in the U.S., you can use these, but for people who are in Australia, for example, we just opened a branch of all CEUs in Australia. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence has guidelines, clinical guidelines, just like we do in, in the U.S., eating disorders, depression, and a lot of times it's really interesting to go to Canadian or Australian sites and see what they're identifying as best practices, because it's not always the same, and, but there is some overlap. COPE is another one, and, and this is the Center for Perinatal Excellence, and they do have guidelines on here that you can look at for helping people with perinatal depression and perinatal substance abuse. Origin is for working with children. Uh, social work policy is another one that's out there, has a lot of the guidelines for licensed clinical social workers. So, you know, there you go. There are a lot of resources that are just kind of out there and available for you to learn. Some states, most states, will give you a little bit of credit, some CEU credits, for independent reading, not all states. So you need to read your board guidelines to make sure that if you're needing them for CEUs that you're, you're getting that. Now, another great place, and it's much easier, if you will, uh, it's not ne nearly as mentally taxing, is 
to find resources online. And this particular website, Mental Phil's Counseling Tools, we work together some. And I really like a lot of the work that she does. Obviously, it's focused on adolescents and children. But there are posters. There are books. There are workbooks. There are games and different things that you can use in counseling. And just by looking at what she's taken and put, in, put together and what she's emphasizing, it brings home a lot for us or it's a good reminder for all of us and it serves again as a great tool and skill to use with your adolescent clients and sometimes you can even take it and go you know what i bet i could make that work in an adult group because adults we all have big kids inside of us but she has tons and tons of resources here so that's it mental fills counseling tools um, and she does she works really hard on on doing those watch videos you know, we have 350 plus videos on the All CEUs YouTube channel, but there are other channels. SAMHSA has an entire channel, and you can find a lot of really good information out there in, in YouTube land. Attend webinars. I just attended a free webinar put on by the Florida Alcohol and Drug Abuse Association this morning on trauma-informed cognitive behavioral therapy with substance abusers. And it was great. Did I need the CEUs right now? No, I've already got all my CEUs for this renewal period. But it was, you know, a really good webinar to attend. And webinars are easy, in my opinion, because you can put them on at your desk. And if you're like me, you can do multitask and listen and pay attention and with webinars, I like them because I can screenshot particular things that I like and so I can go back and review them later. And conferences, not in any particular order did I put these up here, but conferences tend to be at the bottom of the list for a lot of us that are in private practice because they can be kind of pricey. But if you look around, there are, you know, some affordable conferences out there. And if you work at an agency, a lot of times you can get them to send you to one. Ongoing supervision is also necessary because it helps us become more self-aware. How many times have you worked with a client who said, you know, this relapse came from out of the blue? And you're like, well, you know, it probably didn't because we all have blind spots. And ongoing supervision, if you're familiar with the Johari window, you know, I, I use that a lot in supervision. Information about you that both you and others know. Okay. That's what you're getting if you're doing self-supervision and working with clients. The blind self is information about you that you don't know, but others know. And this is where supervision is so helpful. A supervisor can go, well, you know what? You know, this situation, I'm wondering if your experience from two years ago is affecting how you're interacting right now or you look like you're feeling really run down i'm wondering if that's impacting what's going on whatever a lot of times our friends our supervisors our colleagues see things about us that we don't necessarily notice partly because we see ourselves every single day you know if you have a puppy you get the puppy and he, he's cute and he's adorable and then one day you come home and he's a dog and you're like what happened where did my little puppy go? You didn't see the incremental changes because you saw that puppy every day. The same sort of thing with mood and everything else. We have blind spots, and if we do the same thing every single day, there may be gradual changes that we're not noticing that a supervisor might notice. Ongoing supervision helps us identify areas for early intervention. If we're noticing that for example, we're seeing a lot more clients with a particular issue and that, and, and we don't feel like we've got enough training for that. Ongoing supervision, the supervisor might say, you know, you don't sound like you're feeling 100% comfortable working with this or like it's your A game. What do you think about getting some more training in it, which goes to that skills development? And ongoing supervision holds us accountable for skill development. When I would do my annual reviews with, with my supervisees, um, administrative, clinical, we would create a training plan 
for the year. I'd say, what skills do you want to work on? And then every week in supervision, I would be asking them, what did you do to work towards that right now? How can I support you in getting the knowledge and skills and all that kind of stuff that you need, yada, yada. So supervisors are great. They can hold you accountable. They can help you remember how important skills development is. They can be a sounding board. You know, all the reasons that we hope people appreciate supervision when they're working towards licensure, the same thing for later. With ongoing supervision, how do you, it's another one of those things, how do you fit it in? You're supposed to have 30 billable hours a week and, you know, you don't have time to go to the bathroom. How are you going to fit in an additional hour of supervision? Well, you know, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, but there are some things you can do. Self-supervision, like I talked about earlier, where you take 30 minutes after a session and review your tapes or something. Colleague meetings. These are great. You can't do them at a restaurant because of HIPAA stuff, but if you can meet at somebody's office and order in lunch and have a colleague meeting, sort of a brown bag case presentation thing, that's great. Peer review. Using a rubric. And this is not necessarily as much counseling as it is reviewing documentation, but you can do it if you want to swap tapes. A lot of people don't want to do that, and I get that. And it, you run into HIPAA issues if you're swapping tapes outside of your organization. But use a rubric, a, a scoring form. So everybody's looking for the same thing when they're looking through a chart or they're reviewing a tape. You can have staff meeting brown bags. I used to do this with my staff, and we had eight clinicians on staff. Everybody had a week, and during their presentation week, they would be responsible for presenting a case and how it was going and their, from beginning to end so we could see how they operationalized their, their treatment plan. You can have supervision at work from your supervisor. Go figure. And you can have supervision from an independent supervisor which that, again, can kind of get pricey sometimes. But there are a lot of different ways for getting supervision. And yeah, self-supervision is not great if it's the only supervision you get. But it's better than nothing. And one of the things I do with self-supervision is record my sessions, and then I will go back and review them to see if there are things that I missed, and do all the things that I would do if I was re reviewing a supervisee's tapes. That can be helpful. Um, ideally, yes, you would have somebody somewhere, a colleague somewhere, where you can get ongoing supervision. We've talked a lot about, you know, where do you find the time? Well, you need to have the energy. And if you don't have the energy, then you're probably, it's probably going to take you 10 times longer to do everything else anyway. So you're going to have even less time and feel more burned out. So let's talk about self-care and burnout for a minute. Characteristics of burnout work environments. When we're going through these, I want you to focus and reflect on what we can do to protect ourselves from these things and what can be done at an organizational level to try and address them before they cause burnout. That's easier said than done. If you're a line staff, what can you do? If you're a middle manager, what can you do? <laughs> I loved this one. From TLC, Tender Loving Care, to TNC, Time, Numbers, and Crisis. How many of us had this um, shock? When we first went into practice, we had this idea that it was this great, warm, fuzzy, free-flowing thing, and all of a sudden, it's billable hours and clients and crises, and somebody's always knocking on your door. Okay, we need to figure out how to set some boundaries so we can focus on our client instead of focusing on the numbers. Rapid and unpredictable change. It happens you can have a new CEO takeover, or you know, I lived through three different iterations of electronic health records at one organization. Oh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. A destructive communication style, one that is critical. What did you do? Why did you do this? And instead of going, what situation is causing this, this breakdown? What is going on in the organization, which includes you? 
that may be contributing to you not making your billable hours or such so, so forth and so on authoritarian leadership and staff having no say in what happens when senior management goes this is how it's going to be i don't care what you say it can be a problem and i've shared with you before about one of the places that i worked that senior management decided at one point that they were going to put cameras throughout the facility including in all of the group rooms and the therapists were not down with that <laughs> because for obvious reasons um and the, the cameras didn't have any audio. They were just video, and they were designed to prevent vandalism and protect the clients and all that kind of stuff. But the clients were very clearly nervous and not willing to share and open up in group if they didn't know who was going to be monitoring them. Totally get that. But senior management didn't even ask, you know, what do you think the impact would be on, on your clients or anything? So then there was, you know, a little mini revolt, and eventually we got the, the cameras taken out of the group rooms. But authoritarian leadership can lead to a lot of burnout because staff is going, I don't know what to do with this. This is not going to work for me, and I don't know how to work around it. Uh, a defensive attitude by anybody, you know, defensive in... From supervisors, if you say, I can't take on another client right now, and they're like, well, that's not my problem. Or if people feel defensive every time you question something, you know, why are we changing this policy? That can lead to burnout because then it keeps people from asking questions. And when people can't ask questions, they can't contribute. If they can't contribute, then they feel powerless. You see where we're going. If there's a double standard, Different policies and procedures and bias and application between management and employees. So management, for example, may get to go off campus for their meals, but line staff has to eat in the cafeteria. And that is something that needs to be, uh, needs to be considered. And that's, you know, another example of something that I experienced where it really... and. I'm a big believer, uh, do as I say, not as I do, but a big believer in people taking their meal breaks. And I would encourage my staff, during your meal break, go to your office, because our, our staff had to stay on campus, go to your office and shut the door. This is your time. This is not when you're supposed to be shoving down a Big Mac and working on your progress notes. You need 30 minutes to just kind of regroup, if you will. Yeah, we had to come up with some creative ways to make that work in my department. But we were able to do it, which was which was good. We'll get we'll get to problem solving in a minute. Unresolved grievances. When you've got staff that feel like they're powerless when they have an issue with something that's going on and there's no mechanism to address it or if you feel like you say something that it's going to count against you, then people get irritable and they feel stifled and unhappy and unrecognized and unappreciated and all those unwords, which can lead to emotionally troubled personnel and low morale. We need to make sure to increase morale. I had a client one time come up to me. This was when I was working in residential. And he said, you know what, Dr. Snipes, if this is what recovery is, looking at my staff, I don't know what I want, know that I want it. They don't ever look like they're happy. He had a point. So from that moment on, you know, we started implementing interventions in the department and in the team in order to boost morale and help us be a little, little bit less stressed out and a little more gregarious. I quit being as, you know, stoically professional or whatever you want to call it and i started being more myself and i encouraged my staff to do a little bit of the same one of my counselors who was former military i mean his office you could eat off the floor it was so clean and everything was always neat and just so comes out of his office one day wearing clown shoes a wig and had one of those honky horns and i'm like what are you doing and he said, you know what? It seemed like things were just kind of getting a little too stressful around here, so I figured I'd break the tension. 
well, there you go. And it helped. I mean, we all just kind of focused on like, oh my gosh, he's so far out of his comfort zone. But it was funny and it was amusing and it did lighten the tension a little bit. You know, obviously there's a time and a place for those sorts of things, but it is up to, and I put a lot of pressure on middle managers to serve as buffers between senior management and they've got their place and they've got their jobs and line staff because middle managers are the ones who go, okay, this is what's really happening. This is what you think's happening. Let's figure out how we can marry these two and get some something that's workable. Uh, repetitive, boring work. Sometimes you have six assessments in one day. We used to have a person at one of the places I worked that all they did was assessments all day long, day in and day out. Now, I don't know about you, but me, after I do my third assessment in a day, I can't remember what I've asked whom and what the answers have been and it all kind of runs together because you're asking the same question all the time or same, you know, 70 questions. It's important to encourage if, if staff have difficulty with that, you know, some people love it. Some people can do assessments day in and day out and they are happy as clams. If they're not, then we need to say, okay, what can we do? How can we modify your work assignment? So maybe you do assessments in the morning and then lead groups in the afternoon. And the person who was leading groups in the morning does assessments in the afternoon. There are a lot of ways that you can do job sharing in order to create a work environment that is more conducive and more supportive of the clients that you're working with. Another example, I can't feel like I am on my A game, I could probably do it, but I don't feel like I'm on my A game, if I see more than four individual clients in a day. You know, that takes a lot of focus for me. Four individual clients and two or three groups, not a problem. But I'm not the type of person who can see seven clients in a day and feel like I've given every single one of them 110%. So I've always set limits for myself when when possible with that deficient training procedures like double booking or bad elect, uh, electronic health record systems that don't allow people to work effectively or efficiently and then workers are criticized for not being productive I told you about that electronic health record we had and when i went to the training and i'm not super computer literate but i'm above average and I went to it, and it was horrendous. And I remember going to my boss and going, Richard, have you gone to this training? He's like, no. And I was coming in, you know, after this one had already been deployed, and most of my team had already gone, and they were going, oh, my gosh, this thing is awful. Well, I went, and yeah, it was awful. So I'm like, you know what? You need to come to this training with me just for a day and sure enough my supervisor came with me he was the vice president came with me to the training for a day and he's like yeah now I understand why people aren't getting all their paperwork done and their notes done because this system is impossible to work in so it's important to make sure that again and that was a middle manager thing for me to go Line staff is saying this, and they're just, they're not just whining. They are truly having difficulties meeting, meeting their goals. Let's take a look at why this is. It's, it's a good team. I, I need to look at what the change has been, and the change was that electronic health record. So it was up to me to advocate for them as a middle manager, which is why, you know, just really look for good middle managers. <laughs> um, don't... And rapidly inundating people with new equipment and operational standards without sufficient transition can also create burnout and stress. Have you ever had policies change for no apparent reason? And you're just like, okay, well, we've always done it this way. And you're trying to learn this new policy. You may not remember 100% every time. And then you get in trouble because you did it the old way. And you're like, sorry, I forgot. And then people get frustrated because they're getting in trouble for not remembering a new policy. Obviously, some are super duper important, but others 
you know, they're important, but nobody's going to have significant harm. And, and lack of training, like Katie points out, is also another part of this, all of these things, because people can't or aren't able to effectively state their needs and get their needs met. I mean, if we can't communicate, if we can't say, okay, these are the problems and have those things heard by middle or senior management, um, and if middle and senior management can't say, well, here are our problems and have those heard by line staff, then we can't compromise if we can't both put all of our cards on the table. So communication is important. And then communication and training is essential to make sure everybody gets trained and not, well, I thought you went to that training on such and such date, but to make sure that everybody gets the memo, so to speak. And working in a hazardous setting. When we think of hazardous settings, we tend to think of chemicals and that kind of thing. But where we work, can be considered a hazardous setting. We are exposed to the risk of secondary trauma on pretty much any given day. There are staffing shortages that lead to overtime and exhaustion. And when you are exhausted, it's even harder to buffer against any traumas that may come your way. When you're working in an environment like this, how do you feel when you go home? You know, probably exhausted and you know, irritable and you have difficulty appreciating all the great things that are going on at the house because you're just, you're kind of shell-shocked from the day, which tends to start causing problems at home too. Then you're miserable both places and that's not a good thing. So what do we do about it? Eliminate, delegate, prioritize, and simplify. Well, that sounds easy. Make a list of everything you got to do and Monday, Monday morning, whatever you're going to do, make a list of everything you have to do that week. Eliminate anything that's not a have to. You know, progress notes have to be done. Um, I can't think of anything right now that wouldn't have to be done. But if there's something that doesn't have to be rearranging your office, you might like to do it, but that doesn't have to be done this week. You know, so eliminate anything that doesn't have to be done delegate anything that you can. If there's something that can be delegated to someone else, you know, maybe you've got some interns or techs at your facility who are able to cover a psychoeducational group or something, and you really need them to do that so you can get caught up on your notes. Okay. You know, if that's okay at your facility, then great. Prioritize. Once you have eliminated as much as you can and delegated as much as you can, you're left with the list of the stuff that you need to do. So prioritize it. Once that's done, simplify. Your progress notes don't need to be dissertations. They probably have minimum things that need to be in them, but you don't have to make it this thing that you would be proud to turn in for a thesis. Simplify the other things that you're doing, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Practice what you preach. Be mindful. Practice mindfulness at every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check in with yourself. See how you're feeling, what you're needing. If you're struggling with something, check in with yourself and go, you know, should I push through with this right now or do I need to set this aside and do something else and come back to it later? Maintain work-life balance and boundaries. Again, easier said than done. Uh, work-life balance is making sure that when you go home, you can appreciate and enjoy what you've got at home and set boundaries so you're not thinking about work while you're at home or, heaven forbid, typing emails to people at work while you're at home. Try to set that boundary. When we were in Florida, I had about a 30-minute drive to get home, and I would use that 30 minutes to decompress from the day, get my thoughts in order, and then when I walked in the door, I was in mommy mode. And that's kind of how I maintained my sanity. When I would go into the office, I was in office mode. Recreation. You got to add in the fun. Just getting up, going to work, coming home, hanging out with the kids for a while, going to bed and repeating. That's okay. But you want to have some enjoyment in your life. You want to go, oh, yeah, this is the reason that I'm doing all this stuff. Practice assertiveness. 
when you've got a problem at the office or at home or wherever, practice, practicing assertiveness helps you get your needs met, helps you feel heard, helps you feel empowered. And get good sleep and nutrition. Give your body the building blocks it needs so it can be healthy, happy, and energized. Work smarter. One of the things that we started doing at, at my facilities is doing progress notes uh, for individual and group, but we would do them in the group or in the, in the session. We would have the in individuals, we'd have the 50-minute therapy hour, but then the last 10 minutes of the 60-minute hour would be spent doing notes. And I will give you an example. Um, it's going to be itty-bitty. but So a bridge from the last session to maintain continuity. So what my clients, my supervisees would do is say, okay, you know, this has been a good session. Let's review what we talked about. Um, and, and they'd start out with last week we talked about Da, 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 and you are going to do whatever. Now, sometimes they can do this throughout and fill it out throughout the session. Mood check. What has your mood been like this week? And if they're depressed, ask, ask about suicidal thoughts, relapse, medication compliance, yada, yada. What are you hopeful about for the week? What are you most proud of from last week? And then the primary things we worked on today. For example, staying clean and sober for six months by talking about your progress on getting a sponsor and things in your daily life that are acting as triggers and positive things you've done in the past week to stay clean. And then you could address other things that the client, you and the client talked about in the session. You're just writing this down. And then your homework assignments for next week are, you know, blah. And then you can have them sign this and you give, the, give it to them so they can see their progress over over time and they can take it home they've got a you know proof if you will of what they did and they can review it the other one that i like a little bit better is this one client reports that over the past week and again the therapist fills this out um so they're not seeing client reports and they're writing in so they say okay so over the past week you know you said this, this, and this happened, and the client will either confirm or, or deny, but generally they confirm. So you're just summarizing what the client said. And then the therapist would say, okay, your current mood is, you know, today has been, what would you say, angry or content, you know, and fill it out. Going through these things, the treatment plan progress, what you worked on, what we talked about this week. Last week to address this goal, so, you know, between the last session and now, you said that you did this, this, and this, and, you know, you see where I'm going with this. But it made it easier for my staff to get their notes done. Once we went to electronic health records, they would just scan it in and attach the PDF document to the electronic health record, and bada-bing. Um, and, you know, you can modify the forms however you want. They don't have to be as formal. Um, but it's important to, instead of when you see things and go, well, that's not something I can do ever, you know, that wouldn't work here. Think about how could I make it work? Let's get out of the box. How could I, oh my gosh, get a lunch break? How could I make that happen? And it may involve working with a supervisor to recognize the fact that, you know, legally you're supposed to get a 30-minute and two 15-minute breaks, um, but Everybody needs some time to catch their breath, and you're going to be a lot more effective and efficient if you can do that. Uh, whoops. Treatment plan creation and reassessment. Encourage the clients to, and again, I have a form for this that I send home with them after we do our assessment session that says, what are the three things that you really want to work on right now, and how will you know when those things are, are accomplished. They bring that back the second session, which is when we write the treatment plan. So they've all but identified their treatment plan goals for me, and then we go through and identify the sub-goals and objectives and, you know, who's going to do what, and they learn how to write a treatment plan. They learn how to set a goal. Same thing for reassessment. We used to, in, in residential, we would have to do reassessments weekly on treatment plans, and that takes a lot of time. So what we started doing 
was each one of my therapists would bring all of their clients on their caseload together for a meeting on Friday mornings. And everybody in the room would go around and talk about the progress that they had made on their treatment plan and any changes that needed to be made, etc. So the treatment plan was being reassessed in group and their peers were able to give them feedback about what they saw and give them support and encouragement and if something wasn't going well maybe give them suggestions so there was a lot of great stuff that came out of those treatment plan reassessment groups every friday morning create a resource linkages check sheet instead of writing out the resources for each person you know if there are 15 types of resources you use a lot have a check sheet and then if you have a client who needs um food stamps who needs help with electricity and who needs assistance paying for immunizations for their children i don't know um you would pull that sheet out and you would check off the, the places that the person needs to call and each place has next to it it's not just you know the name of the organization but it's who they call and what the phone number is and i always put a line under each one so they could write under there after they called the person they could write what the result of the contact was and then i could add that to the chart when they came back the next day but that saved a lot of time trying to find numbers and contact information again identify repetitive data and create check sheets our chief operating officer realized that when we were doing our assessments the sometimes we asked the same things a lot like orient um, the client is oriented times four so we would he had check sheets or check blocks on the sheet for client is oriented to person place time you see where we're going so you weren't having to write all that out it sounds minuscule but every five ten seconds you save here and there adds up and for integrated summaries again use a template in order to make sure that everything gets in there but to keep people from going off on this long-winded dissertation and basically restating the assessment, which I found a lot of my clinicians tended to do. Remember, the major factor in creating change is the therapeutic relationship. 80% of change comes from that. So instead of getting all stressed out about, oh, I've got to remember these skills and I've got to figure out how to fix this or change this in a person, provide that warm, empathic, unconditional, positive regard and support to your client in the room and they will you know find the encouragement identify sources of your distress and address them with your supervisor things that you know we we all get stressed out by different things and develop a plan to mitigate them you may not be able to change everything but you can figure out using your dialectics and and your dpd dbt skills you can figure out ways to make them less impactful on you if you can't make them go away altogether work from a strengths based recovery oriented perspective i've worked with a lot of client uh, supervisees and and new clinicians who get so frustrated when their clients relapse and it's important for them to understand and it was a hard lesson i had to learn too that if somebody comes in regardless of whether it's depression schizophrenia or alcohol um, when somebody comes in and they are in a pre-contemplative level of change they don't see that there's a problem they're being forced there expecting them to achieve full-blown recovery in 30 days or 10 weeks is not really realistic you want to move them one stage of readiness for change so if they're not ready at all getting them to the point in 30 days where they're willing to consider that you know maybe something may need to change a little bit that's what's important and recognizing that we're helping people move towards a rich and meaningful life getting away from the removing disease you know if they are working towards a rich and meaningful life by default that problem won't be there anymore so we want to help them grow and that's a much more empowering and optimistic framework to approach life from every day instead of just trying to keep sally from being suicidal again um, talk with your supervisor to balance your caseload because not all clients require the same amount of energy some clients are easy peasy and other clients will drain 
your energy. And it could be based on their content. It could be based on a lot of different things. It could be based on the diagnosis. But it's important if, you're, if you've got a lot of challenging clients and no easy clients to try to balance that out. And finally, if you're starting to feel burned out or you're trying to prevent being burned out, ask yourself, what would you tell your clients that you would want, um, want them to do in order to prevent burnout? You know, try to embrace that um, do as I say and do as I do sort of philosophy. So clinicians have an ethical imperative to do more than just no harm, but we need to advocate and advance the cause, the mental health and happiness and coping skills and all that stuff. Let's get it out there. With good self-care and burnout prevention, you can have the energy and time to improve clinical skills and potentially engage in additional supervision. Who knew? Alrighty, everybody. I know I ran a little bit over today. Does anybody have any questions, comments? Um, yes, I can share my template examples. I will put them in the additional resources section of your class in just a few minutes.